This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. New Books in Geography, channel on the New Books Network. Uh, my name is Peter Ekman at UC Berkeley. I'm the host of this channel. And today we are joined with Chet Van Duzer. He is a very accomplished historian of cartography who is currently David Rumsey Research Fellow at the John Carter Brown Library in Providence, Rhode Island. He has published a book out just this year officially with Springer, the title of which is Henricus Martellus's World Map at Yale, circa 1491. Multispectral Imaging, Sources, and Influence. Uh, we'll talk about all these aspects of the book. It's an incredibly rich book, majestically detailed study of one map, its maker, and its broader patterns of influence. Also an example of, and I think an argument for, a very distinctive new way of collecting visual information about about the past. Multispectral imaging as a method is something I assume we'll get into in some depth, in addition to the, the claims, the substantive content of the book. Very glad to have Chet with us today. Uh, Chet, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. I appreciate you making the time. There's quite a lot to talk about before we get too deep into the substance of the book and these questions of methodology and imaging and all the rest of it. Um, I wonder if you could take a few minutes to sort of introduce yourself, um, a bit of uh, personal and intellectual biography, where you've been, where you're coming from, um, and then ultimately how you came to write this particular book rather than some other book. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, uh, I studied English literature and mathematics at UC Berkeley, and I became interested in maps at a very specific moment. It was during a visit to the Vatican Museums in Rome uh, as a tourist, and a, a 15th century manuscript of Ptolemy's geography was on display, that uh, and it was the manuscript was open to a world map that had been added to the manuscript in about 1530, and that map showed a, a very remarkable ring continent around the South Pole. That is a, a ring of land around the South Pole with open water at the pole, and I knew that at that time uh, people believed that there had to be. Uh, southern continent as a, as a theoretical construct, not as the result of any uh, sort of pre-discovery of Antarctica. Um, but I was puzzled by the shape of this continent. Rather than being a, basically a large island at the South Pole, it was a ring of land around the South Pole. And also, despite the fact that it was labeled terra incognita, it was full of place names. So I wanted to know where this idea that 
this hypothetical southern continent had a, the shape of a ring and also where all these place names came from. And that, that was the moment uh, at which I became interested in maps. And uh, what I like about uh, studying maps is precisely that type of detective work, trying to figure out the sources of things on maps. And as far as how I got interested in the Yale Martellus map, as we'll call it, so uh, a world map made by Enriquez Martellus, which is at the Beinecke Library at Yale, um, I was invited to give a talk at a conference on Martin Waldseemuller's world maps at the Library of Congress in 2009. And in, in preparing that talk and in thinking about my approach to discussing Waldseemuller's, I'm sorry, discussing Waldseemuller's famous world map of 1507, um, <clears throat> I, I started to think about Enriquez Martellus's map at Yale um, because it has some striking similarities in the contours of the continents, uh, particularly of Eastern Asia, to Waldseemuller's map. But I knew that it had not been possible to really investigate just how close the relationship was between the two maps because the writing on the Martellus map had faded to illegibility. Um, and but, but I started examining it nonetheless, and one thing I noticed was that in, in addition to the striking similarity of, of contours uh, in Eastern Asia between the two maps, going down the eastern coast of Africa, there is a series of cartouches of, of framed texts on the two maps, and the, the positions of this series of cartouches are almost identical. And what that suggested to me was that not, not only are the contours of Asia very similar on the two maps, uh, but it seemed that if the positions of these cartouches were the same, that the text in them might be the same as well, which pointed to a, a much closer relationship between the two maps than had been uh, possible to demonstrate previously. And that led me on a path towards um, multispectral imaging of the map. So my first step was to contact the Beinecke Library at Yale and obtain scans of ultraviolet photographs that had been made of the Martellus map when it surfaced in the late 1950s. And and, and ultraviolet light is, is one way to reveal text on damaged documents. And those ultraviolet images uh, were very compelling in that they showed that in, in parts of the map where we cannot see text with the naked eye, there is, in fact, text there. Um, particularly in northeastern Asia, there was a, there's a very dramatic photo, uh, ultraviolet photo of the Martellus map that shows that that region is dense with descriptive texts, even though with the naked eye, we can just see very, very faint signs of a couple of them. And that was the most exciting image of a map I'd ever seen. Um, it 
it really spurred me forward in my determination to study the Martellus map in detail and to find a way to um, to be able to read those texts and thus enable a comparison with Martin Waldseemuller's world map of 1507. And so uh, at the, the conference at the Library of Congress, I was able to read a few words uh, from one of the cartouches off the coast of Eastern Africa on the Martellus map using these ultraviolet photographs, enough words to show that there was a close relationship uh, between the text on Martellus's map and the text on Waldseemuller's map. And uh, then I, after that conference, I, I contacted the Beinecke Library and asked whether it might be possible to make multispectral images of the map. And at that time, Yale did not have the technology, but they were able to make new ultraviolet, infrared, and natural light photographs of the map for me very generously. Um, and using those images and a fellowship at the John Carter Brown Library, where I am now, I was able to read uh, a fair amount of text on the map. It was slow going, um, but but I was able to read enough words to, to go further in this comparison and show that um, quite a number of the texts, the descriptive texts on the two maps are very similar. And then I got in touch with Gregory Hayworth, uh, director of the Lazarus Project, which was then at the University of Mississippi, now at the University of Rochester, and began to talk with him about the possibility of making multispectral images of the map. And uh, briefly, multispectral images are a tool that's much more powerful than either ultraviolet images or infrared images uh, by themselves to recover text and images from damaged documents, manuscripts, and maps. And working with the Lazarus Project, uh, we, we planned uh, the, how we would go about imaging the map, and we obtained from the National Endowment for the Humanities uh, a grant to, to fund that imaging project. And we went to the Beinecke Library in uh, the summer of 2014, and made uh, the multispectral images over the course of a 10-day visit to the Beinecke. Um, and with, with multispectral images, it is not the case uh, that one takes the images and, and suddenly everything is revealed. Uh, the magic is in the processing of the images. Um, and we'll, we can talk more about that later, but uh, the, the processing... Uh, which in this case was an interactive procedure between myself and Roger Easton at the Rochester Institute of Technology, uh, who, who did much of the processing. So Roger would, would process some of the images of a map, which would reveal some of the text, and I would make a PowerPoint and send it back to Roger, indicating the areas of the map where uh, there was text that I still could not read yet, and Roger would try a different technique. To, to try and bring out that additional text. So this, this process took many months um, and uh, finally resulted 
in uh, our these processed images revealed much of the text on the map, and that enabled the study of the map that uh, has become this this book by Springer. So that was a very long uh, description of. Uh, how I came to write the book, but it was a, a very long procedure of, of many steps of, of increased access to the text on the map. It's, it's great to hear you tell it in this way, and I mean, just the, the, the way in which the the origin story of the project, in a sense, um, resides in that that initial glimpse of the map. The, the 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 image has this kind of propulsive force in. Um, uh, sort of inducing you on, uh, to, to, to follow this this long and very complex um, very complex path. Um, we will talk about all of this. Um, we will talk about the methodology in some depth, um, what it consists of, uh, what, what your role and the role of these various um, sort of te technicians in the process. Um, this is all fascinating. Um, and before we do that, I suppose it, it makes sense to briefly. I mean, to, to, to the extent that we're able to um, ascertain this, um, to talk about who Henricus Martellus was exactly. Who was he? Um, where was he? Mm -hmm. How did he do his work? And how do we know? Yes, well, unfortunately, we know very little about Martellus. Um, <clears throat> we know that he was a, a, a German. Uh, he, he signs the map at Yale, Henricus Martellus Germanus. And we know that he was working in Florence. Uh, but beyond that, uh, we have very little in the way of uh, documentary detail about him. So what we what we do have are his works, uh, which consist of uh, <clears throat> the maps in two manuscripts of Ptolemy's geography. Uh, so the geography had been written by Claudius Ptolemy in the 2nd century AD, and uh, the maps seem to have been recreated in about 1300 in, in Constantinople, and from that point had this rapid uh, and wide diffusion in Italy and from there to the rest of Europe. And so Martellus made the maps in two of the surviving manuscripts of Ptolemy's geography. Um, the other works we have by him uh, are manuscripts of an Islario, uh, or Isolario in Italian, an island book. So a book about the world's islands illustrated with maps. Um, we also have a, a relatively small printed world map. Uh, it, was, it was printed by um, Francesco Roselli. And I don't think there can be any doubt that the cartography, although it's not signed, that the cartography was by Henricus Martellus. And then we have the world map at Yale, uh, which is much, much larger than either this, the printed world map I just mentioned or the world maps that survive in some of his manuscript island books. So it's a very different work, uh, the world map at Yale, and a much more ambitious work, not just in terms of its size, but also in terms of its coverage of the Earth's surface. He goes a further to the east and includes Japan on the world map at Yale. So again, unfortunately, we have very little documentary evidence about uh, Martellus's life, so we, we really have to draw conclusions about him based on his works. 
That's good. Yeah, I mean, most of these, uh, many or most of these uh, maps that, that you mentioned are reproduced in, in some form in the book. Very, very rich images. It's, of course, impossible to transmit these in full in the context of an audio interview such as this. But the book is a visually very exciting document. It's also worth noting that there is um, there's sort of another layer, another component um, to the visual content of this project that appears um, online only. Um, through, through, through Springer, there are some additional images that are not reproduced in the hard copy of the book, which are most definitely worth um, exploring. There's a pretty extensive methodological appendix in the book, and then there is sort of this um, other realm of imagery that I think mm -hmm. enrich enriches the, the analysis still more. Uh, and some of the some of the some of the images, some of the maps that you that you name, I think the ones from uh, his his work on Ptolemy's geography are are particularly rich, particularly um, uh, evocative in in their in their coloration and aspects of their of their detailing. Um, you say towards the end of the book, um, it's on page one ninety three for those uh, keeping score, that um, the Martellus map was for quite some time deemed, I'm quoting here, an essentially unstudiable object. Um, mm. it's, a, it's a strong statement, um, but everything that you lay out about the condition of the document um, and the potential uh, gains, the sort of disparity between the, the document seen under natural light and the document now seeable um, through multispectral imaging, um, I think gives some credence to that. Um, I'd like to talk about that method in, in some depth, I guess. Um, I defer to you, of course. Um, I'd like to know just sort of what this, what this looks like in practice. What kinds of, what kinds of gains are made possible by multispectral imaging? Uh, what new kinds of information, um, uh, emerged? Uh, you, you mentioned your, 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 Desire to decipher different legends, different uh, descriptions of uh, of components of, of space. That's one part of it, certainly the textual aspect. Um, I suppose thinking about the, the the coloration, the ways in which the the outlines of the, the continents are rendered is sort of another level. Um, I leave it to you. I'm curious about what this process looks like, just quite literally, what multispectral imaging uh, is, and what sort of labor mm -hmm. goes into making it possible. But then also in sort of a um, you know evidentiary and conceptual sense, uh, what new kinds of knowledge uh, come to the fore? Yes, well, uh, I should begin by saying that it's it's a quite a laborious and involved process. Um, the, the basic idea of multispectral imaging is to take a series of images, uh, digital images of the object at specific frequencies of light. And those frequencies, depending depending on the project, there might be, say, 14, 12, or 14 of them. And they would range, they would include ultraviolet, range through the visible spectrum, and go into the infrared. And typically, each of those digital images will reveal something about the object. And the idea of multispectral imaging is, try, is to, having taken those images, each of which, hopefully, maybe not all of them, but many of them reveal something about the object, to digitally combine those images into one in a way such that what is revealed by each of them is, is visible in the, the final product. 
So very uh, simplifying considerably, that's the idea. Um, the, the way that multispectral imaging used to be done was that a bright white light would be shown on the object. Um, and white light contains all the different frequencies, all the different wavelengths of light. And then one would place a filter in front of the camera to allow into the camera only the desired frequency of light. And there are two problems with that earlier technology. First, the bright white light <clears throat> bathed the object in too much energy, uh, more energy than conservatives would be comfortable with, and, and quite rightly so. And then second, any filter induces at least some distortion. And so the more recent uh, technique, uh, which was developed um, in uh, in studying the Archimedes palimpsest, which is probably the most famous object that has been studied by multispectral imaging, is to use LED lights that only shine on the object the exact frequency of light desired. So immediately all this extra energy uh, that was involved in shining a bright white light uh, on the object goes away and the need for a filter to 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 remove all this excess light uh, from what goes into the camera is also removed so it's a much much more elegant uh, procedure and also uh, is is entirely safe for the object uh, so the the amount of energy to which the object is subjected uh, is is less than if it were lying out on a table in in ordinary uh, artificial light. In order to to undertake multispectral imaging uh, of an object, uh, one needs quite a bit of equipment. Uh, one needs these uh, special lights uh, that, that that have a, these banks of LED lights that only shine exactly the desired frequency on the object. Uh, one needs a special camera, and in particular, uh, a camera with a special lens that that does not so a, a, a normal glass lens in, invoke it causes distortion in uh, ultraviolet light. As ultraviolet light passes through it, so it doesn't ultraviolet light does not pass through a normal glass lens the same way that natural light does, uh, which results in the 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 images taken at ultraviolet frequencies not uh, being registered the same as uh, those taken with natural light. And then one needs uh, a computer to control both the camera and the lights and particularly the exposures. And setting up this equipment uh, is quite an undertaking. Uh, so making sure that, uh, the, that everything is... Uh, calibrated collect correctly. Um, it's also important that the spatial relationship between the camera and the lights remain constant uh, throughout the imaging. So everything has to be located very carefully. Um, maybe I'll go into a little bit more detail about specifically how we imaged the Martellus map. Sure, by all means. Um, so we had 10 days at the Beinecke Library. We um, <clears throat> we were, were given a room. Uh, one important, uh, it's important when doing multispectral imaging that no natural light uh, come into the room, which would interfere with the imaging. So we, we had a room that had no windows. 
uh, to to the outside, which uh, was essential. We uh, shipped to the Beinecke a very large easel to support the map. And the easel was uh, tilted back at 10 degrees uh, so that the, the ma- that gravity would hold the map in place on the easel. And the idea of the easel was that it allowed the map to be moved uh, both to the left and right and up and down. As I said, when doing multispectral imaging, it's very important that the spatial relationship between the camera and the lights remain constant. And so we we fixed the camera in place, we fixed the lights in place, and then what we did is for the imaging to move the map in front of the camera. In order to obtain the resolution we desired, we in effect divided the map into 55 overlapping tiles, uh, so 11 columns and five rows. And that was how we, we imaged the map. We imaged the map in these tiles. Uh, and so we would, we would take an image of, of one tile, and if we were continuing on the same row, then we would move the map to the side uh, exactly the right amount. We, as the surface of the map was not even, uh, we then would have to refocus uh, slightly. And then, uh, so we proceeded to image all 55 of these tiles, and for each of uh, the tiles, again, multiple images were taken at multiple specific frequencies of light. So you'll have to imagine a dark room uh, with these LED lights flashing periodically as the, the raw data was gathered from the map. And one spends a, a lot of time in the dark uh, doing multispectral imaging. And it's an absolutely fascinating process for the first several minutes, seeing how it all works. And after that, it quickly becomes much less fascinating. And one is uh, in the dark with this very repetitive procedure uh, going on. And one hopes that one's colleagues have good stories to tell. Mm -hmm. And I was fortunate that my colleagues um, did have good stories to tell. And that this whole long process was very enjoyable, as a matter of fact. And I want to name my colleagues uh, on this project. Uh, so, again, from the Lazarus Project, uh, the director of the project is Gregory Hayworth in the Department of English at uh, the University of Rochester. Uh, we also had Michael Phelps of the Early Manuscripts Electronic Library, who directs a project making multispectral images of palimpsest manuscripts at St. Catherine's Monastery on the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, Also, Roger Easton, uh, whom I mentioned earlier, of the Rochester Institute of Technology, who did most of the processing of the images. And Ken Boydston, who is president of the company Megavision, uh, which makes the company, the the equipment that we used for this project. And... uh, Ken is a fantastically accomplished photographer, and he, he knows every piece of the equipment inside out. So to have Ken with you on an imaging project is a great, uh, a great benefit and luxury. Uh, I should mention that we, we actually imaged the whole map twice. Uh, we, we, we budgeted, uh, because multispectral imaging is a complex procedure, Various things can go wrong, so it's prudent to budget more time 
than an optimist would. And so we, we had time to image the whole map twice, and we made some adjustments to the exposures uh, in our second uh, imaging. Uh, and it's also worth mentioning that negotiating access to a precious object uh, like the Martellus map is time-consuming, and one wants to be absolutely certain that one comes away with very high-quality data. So that was another um, motivating factor in imaging the map twice. The, the last, absolute last thing we would want to do would have to would be to end the project, go away, find that our data was not of high quality, and uh, have to ask permission to access the map again. Um, so yes, we, we imaged the whole, the whole map twice uh, with some adjustments to the exposures, but as a matter of fact, both sets of data were of very high quality, which was gratifying. That sounds great. And then in terms of the, um, the you, you mentioned this, uh, I guess, 55-fold division of the map into tiles. Um, if I'm not mistaken, each one of those 55 tiles can be viewed individually. Um, yeah. in, in the online material at, at a pretty a pretty great resolution. Yes. Um, so the idea with uh, the, the tiles was twofold. First of all, to, uh, to be able to study the map in part so that one didn't have to have a gigantic image of the whole map. Uh, one could uh, open a, a, a large but still reasonably sized file in order to study the details of the map. And then also uh, the, the tiles were overlapping so that they could be stitched together. Uh, so we're able to generate uh, images of uh, portions of the map and the whole map as well. Um, but yes, with the, the online images, the supplementary images to the book, uh, part of the idea was um, to, to be able to show the reader some of the specific images that enabled readings of of place names and, and texts on the map uh, that were that had been difficult to achieve. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Great. Um, it's great to hear all the, the details of, of the process. It is an enormous undertaking, and the book reflects that just in the richness of the, of the, I mean, of the source material and the, the, just the analytical grain of the project. Um, it, it's it's clear um, as you know as one gets into the, the core chapters of the book that you're um, you're you're really quite interested in this map um, as bound up in uh, sort of wider circuits of influence. You spend quite a bit of time specifying how it might relate, how it might have exerted a kind of influence on a few other particular. Uh, uh, mapping projects, just and a few other, I guess, canons of geographical knowledge. Um, in particular, this 1507 map of uh, Waldseemüller, mm -hmm. um, I guess most famously or un understood to be the, the first map that names 
America, America. Um, and you make a series of claims that Martellus um, has been uh, vastly uh, underrepresented as a as a source, as a crucial influence on the Waldseemuller Miller map. Um, I wonder if you could speak to that um, in some depth, I guess, um, talking about some of the similarities um, and, and how you've ascertained those similarities, um, but also some of the crucial differences and how we might account for these. Yes. Um, so, what, as I said earlier, what had motivated my interest in the Martellus map was precisely the, the possibility of comparing it in detail with Martin Veldseemuller's 1507 world map. Uh, the 1507 world map is a printed map, uh, but survives in only one exemplar, which is at the Library of Congress. It's famous for being the, the first map to apply the name America to the New World, so it's been uh, called the birth certificate of America. And um, it's also famous for being the most expensive map ever purchased. So the Library of Congress purchased, purchased it for $10 million, mm-hmm. uh, half with public money and half with uh, privately raised funds. Um but yes, yeah, so that, that was what motivated my interest in the Martellus map was the possibility of comparing it in detail with Baltimore's map. And uh, it, it, it quickly became clear to me that, that Martellus's map was uh, an, an absolutely essential influence on Baltimore. Um, and in particular... Waldseemuller copied a great number of the descriptive texts on his map from Martellus. And uh, there really can be no doubt about that, uh, in that the, the location of the texts on the two maps are the same, and the wording is, uh, if, if although in, in many cases not absolutely identical, it's very, very similar. Um, and... So, again, just to reiterate, that, so Baltimore copied a great number of descriptive texts from Martellus. At the same time, it bears mentioning that in general he did not copy many place names, many toponyms from Martellus. Um, and that was an interesting result. I, I had been inclined to assume that if Baltimore had... Martellus's map in his workshop that he would not copy just the descriptive text, but various other things as well. And uh, that turned out not to be the case. And really, that's where studying the relationship between the two maps becomes more interesting. Um, So Baltimore was not just copying wholesale. In fact, he was making very judicious use of Martellus's map, this, this source that was very important to him. And he had more recent sources uh, for place names, for example, on the coast of Africa. So that was a part of the Martellus map that scholars had expressed considerable interest in. So if if we could read the place names on the coast of Africa, we could see where Martellus's information fell in terms of the, the process of Portuguese voyages of exploration down that coast. Uh, and it turned out that Waldseemuller had copied almost none of the place names on the coast of Africa from Martellus. 
precisely because he had a more recent source, a, another map to copy from in that area where that had more recent information uh, than Martellus did. So what emerges uh, is a very interesting view of a cartographer, Martin Waldsmuller, at work. Uh, we By studying how he made use of Martellus's map, we get some insight into his process in making a map, um, which, which parts he borrowed from which maps, and that's not a, a process that we can see through other documentary evidence. So Waldsingler did not leave a, a diary or a workshop manual that goes through uh, how he went about making a map, but by looking so the multispectral images allow us to see the details of the Martellus map, which allow us to see how he made use of it and thus gain some insight into, uh, again, how he went about making a world map. That's great to hear. Um, the Veltzer Miller map, um, I think, has, uh, I suppose, pride of place in uh, in your analysis and indeed in, in the, again, this sort of origin story of the book. There are a few other... Um, few other maps and globes uh, and uh, bodies of geographic knowledge, I suppose, that um, you devote some attention to. One is mm -hmm. Martin Beheim's Globe of 1492. Uh, you mm -hmm. mentioned work from the very early 16th century by Caverio and Contarini. Um, you also suggest that uh, Martellus's work may have been actually a fairly signal influence on Christopher Columbus and mm -hmm. some of his sort of geographic assumptions, ontological assumptions about the knowability of the globe, um, mm -hmm. put into practice uh, just a year later, I suppose. Um, that, that's a number of different strands of influence. Um, I wouldn't expect you to uh, uh, devote equal attention to each one of these, but I'd like to hear about some of these, these, these other directions in which Martellus's work uh, points. Yes, so I'll uh, I'll begin with Christopher Columbus. Um, so uh, Roberto Amalia, the the Italian scholar, had pointed out uh, that Martellus's maps, not so not just the one at Yale, um, but other of his world maps, seemed to be the closest thing to a, a reification, a realization of uh, of Columbus' conception of the world. Uh, and when the when the the map now at Yale, the Martellus map now at Yale uh, surfaced, R. A. Skelton, the the British uh, cartographic historian, and Roberto Amalia. Uh, studied the map and suggested that uh, it, that this cartography, that Martellus's cartography, so let's say probably not in all likelihood the exact physical map that's now at Yale. It's very unlikely that that exact map was in Columbus's hands. It's likely that Martellus made other uh, similar large detailed world maps, but that that cartography had in fact influenced Columbus which is a very bold claim to make, uh, and but there's there's good evidence to support it. And one of the one of the pieces of evidence evidence that's easiest to convey uh, 
succinctly. I, I go through the others in the book in, in some detail, but the one that's easiest to, to convey concisely um, is that Columbus's son uh, wrote a biography of his father, and in that biography he says that my father would certainly uh, have uh, discovered Japan had he not believed that it was oriented to the north and south, that is, that the island's principal axis ran to the north and south. And that is how Japan is depicted on the Martellus maps, that, that is, with its principal axis running north and south. And at the time, uh, the, only Europe, the only information about Japan that was available in Europe came from Marco Polo. And Marco Polo does not specify, uh, does not go into detail about the geography of Japan at all, and does not say anything like that uh, the principal axis of the islands ran north and south. And in fact, there there is no other surviving document, either cartographic or textual, that says that the principal axis of Japan ran to the north and south. So all the only document we have of that nature are Martellus's maps. So we, we have uh, the, the world map at Yale, which shows Japan with precisely that orientation. And then in one of his island books, um, Martellus includes a, a separate map of Japan and also gives this, the island that same orientation there. Um, so those are the only uh, documents we have surviving that that give the the Japan the, the same orientation that Columbus believed it had according to his son. Uh, so that that alone is a a pretty compelling piece of evidence uh, that uh, this cartography influenced Columbus. Um, and, and again, I go through uh, further evidence of that influence in in the book itself. Um, I'll also say a few words about Martin Beheim's globe. Great. Um, and the the question of influence there is more complicated. Um, so the contours of Asia on Beheim's globe are like those on Martin Baltzmuller's world, world map, very very similar to what we see on uh, the Yale Martellus map. Um, at the same time. Uh, <clears throat> while both Beheim and Martellus uh, use Marco Polo as a source, it is not the case that Beheim simply copies citations of Marco Polo from Martellus. Uh, they both use Marco Polo, but differently. And so on the one hand, we have this similarity of contours of Asia, which is very striking, but on the other hand, we have these significant differences in the, the, the descriptive texts on the interior. Um, so what that means is that, <clears throat> that Beheim was not borrowing uh, from Martellus in, in every aspect of his map. And of course, it's very possible. I mean, the, the same way that Baltimore borrowed some things from Martellus, but not others, 
that that also seems to have been what happened uh, with Martin Beheim, that he borrowed some things from Martellus, but not others. And uh, I think it's, uh, it's fair to say that, that Beheim's borrowing was uh, was on a reduced scale from what uh, Waldseemuller did. So while Waldseemuller copied contours and descriptive texts from Martellus, uh, Beheim copied the contours and, and he seems to have been using another source um, that Martellus was also using. So some of the animals depicted on Beheim's globe come from an illustrated encyclopedia called the Hortus Sanitatis. And some of the descriptions of animals on Martellus's map come from the Hortus Sanitatis as well. So the, the, the globe and Martellus's map share that source, which... Um, uh, which which is another link between them, um, but it's I, I guess I it's I would need to say I need to do more work on Beheim's globe before I understand that relationship uh, really well. Sure, I mean there's there's always more to be done. Um, yes. We've been speaking about the influence of Martellus um, on map, map making projects in the ensuing years. Um, I wonder if you could also speak. A little bit about Martellus's um, use of his own sources, um, mm-hmm. the relationship between uh, his work and the findings and descriptions of Marco Polo is, is interesting on the one hand in, in rendering uh, rendering Asia. Um, there, there's of course a broad familiarity with with, with Ptolemy's geography um, that you indicated earlier. Um, one of the more um, I think surprising and significant um, uh, claims that you put forward is about how Martellus made use of African mapping traditions, um, mm-hmm. particularly in, in, re- in, in rendering Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, um, in particular. Um, could you speak to that? Where do we see that? How does that come through? And, uh, uh, uh how does it matter? Yes. Um, so one of the, uh, very interesting characteristics of the Martellus map is the shape that he gives to Southern Africa. So although on Baltimore's map, Southern Africa has a shape that's quite recognizable. It's fairly accurate. Uh, The the shape on of Southern Africa on the Martellus map is, is um, very distinctive and unusual and surprising uh, there's a huge peninsula that, that juts to the east at the southern part of the continent, and it, it seems to have the shape of a human foot with the, the toe pointing to uh, to the east, to the left, or sorry, to the right. Um, and uh, so that's an interesting characteristic of the map that, that Baltimore chose not to copy, and it also raised the question of, of where uh, <clears throat> where Martellus got this idea. And so the Southern Africa was definitely an, an area of interest for me on the map. And using the uh, ultraviolet and infrared images that Yale made in 2010, I was able to see a- another feature of Southern Africa that, that interested me considerably, uh, which was that the Nile River system 
continues very far to the south in Africa. So according to Ptolemy, Claudius Ptolemy, uh, the, the Nile took its origin in the mountains of the moon, which were approximately uh, halfway down Africa, let's say halfway between the, the northern and southern limits of the continent. Um, and the Yale Martellus map shows mountains in that location, but then the river continues far beyond, far to the south beyond those mountains and, and, and goes to the southeast in this, this large peninsula that, that juts to the east. It, it goes down to that part of the map. So that was also very puzzling. Where had Martellus gotten the idea uh, that the, the, the Nile River system continued so far to the south? And then as, as both the um, 2010 ultraviolet and infrared images and then the multispectral images uh, from 2014 and 15 uh, allowed me to read place names in southern Africa, I began to see that uh, although at that time many other European maps show, have no geographical information about the interior of Africa in the south, uh, on the Martellus map, there were many named cities. There were named mountains. There were named rivers. But in particular, the named cities really struck me. And so I started investigating what might be the source of those place names. And there are three other maps that survive uh, that show considerable geographical detail in southern Africa with many named cities in particular. And that's the so-called Egyptus Novello map, which means New Egypt map, which is a, a very vague name, uh, particularly as what the map actually shows is more uh, what would have been called Ethiopia in the Renaissance, which is to say Africa south of Egypt. And this map survives in three manuscripts of Ptolemy's geography. And... In the Renaissance, uh, the, the information in Ptolemy's geography was more than 1,200 years old. And for all the respect that scholars had for Ptolemy's magnificent accomplishment, they also realized that his geographical information was out of date. And so both manuscripts and printed editions of the geography were updated in various ways. And one of the ways they were updated was by the addition to them of quote-unquote, new maps, modern maps. And the Egyptus Novella map is one of those maps, so a, a modern map that was added to manuscripts of Ptolemy's geography. And so those maps show this very detailed image of southern Africa with many named cities, mountains, and rivers. And scholars who have worked on those maps have uh, come to the conclusion, uh, which seems to me likely, that that, that geographical information was transmitted to Europe at the Council of Florence in 1441 to 1443. Uh, we have uh, reliable information indicating that there were quote-unquote Ethiopian delegates uh, at the Council of Florence. And we also have records that they were questioned about the geography of their homeland. And 
uh, the record of that conversation that we have says that uh, they, they answered the questions. And then the questioner said, well, what you say does not agree with Ptolemy, so you must be wrong. But it's easy to imagine that some more open minded uh, scholars who were present took these Ethiopian delegates aside. And again, in this context, Ethiopia just means Africa south of Egypt and questioned them in more detail about their homeland. So the Egyptus Dovello maps contain information about Africa from African sources in the 15th century, and they are really remarkable maps. Um, and when I was able to read place names in southern Africa on the Martellus map, I found very close correspondence um, between some of the place names in southern Africa on the Martellus map and place names in southern Africa on the Egyptus Novello map. So that indicates a very, very close connection between the two. That's what was really, yeah, no, no, please go on. What was really striking uh, about the Martellus map and unique about the Martellus map is that it, it, while, it, while it contains some of that same data, it, it extends it further to the east. So the Egyptus Novello maps, all three of them, uh, do not show the entire continent of Africa. The, the, the information is cut off by a meridian. Uh, but the Martellus map has a more complete uh, version of this information, is my interpretation, that uh, a version where that information extends further to the east and to the south, to this curious peninsula that, that juts east from the southern part of Africa. So where that, that data, again, is cut off on the Egyptus Novello maps, it's more complete in the Martellus map. And so what the Martellus map preserves within it, remarkably, is a more complete version of this African map of Africa from the 15th century. It's really quite remarkable. No, that's, that's fascinating. It's one of the most striking um, striking claims that you document in the book. I mean, it, it, it poses the question of these different bodies of geographic knowledge, different styles of map making, but... I mean, as, as, as you've explained, uh, questions of European-African relations more broadly during, during that time. Mm. Um, very, very interesting. Um, well, the book is out now. Um, it's 2019. Springer has brought this to press. It's a, it's a great-looking book. We discussed the, the, the auxiliary material as well. It's incredibly well-sourced uh, uh, in, in many languages. It's a visually rich Project, and I, I think readers will find it very rewarding to to explore. Um, now that it's out, I wonder if you might be working on another book project, perhaps based on some of this material or on this methodology. Uh, yes, I'm. I'm. I continue to work with multispectral imaging and and with my colleagues at the Lazarus Project, and uh, we we continue to have a very fruitful and enjoyable collaboration. Um, and we have uh, a couple of um, ambitious imaging projects uh, in the planning stages. Uh, but first, I'll mention one that's that, that just happened. Uh, so there's a, a largely unstudied uh, manuscript map of Africa uh, at the Henry Ransom Center at the University of Texas at Austin, which uh, has been dated to about 1520 and has uh, problems with 
place names on the coast of Africa that have uh, become essentially illegible. And uh, two of my colleagues, uh, Ken Boydston and Todd Hanneken, uh, recently visited UT Austin and were able to image the map while they were there. And I've just uh, started uh, studying the, the place names on the coast of Africa uh, and I'm working with Roger Easton again, who is processing the images. And we're, we're having a discussion uh, similar to what we had uh, on in the course of our work on the Martellus map. That is, uh, Roger sends me processed images and I send back uh, questions about whether there's any way to reveal a bit more of the text on the map. So uh, I'm excited to see what that map will reveal and, and what it shows us about it, its place in the history of the uh, cartography of Africa. Um, but one of the ambitious imaging projects we have in mind is, is precisely the Martin Beheim globe, uh, which is at the, the German National Museum in Nuremberg, and is a, a fantastic candidate for multispectral imaging, uh, precisely because many of the texts on it have faded uh, to illegibility. And in fact, it's, it's even more complicated than that because uh, so some of the conservators of the globe in the 19th century saw that the texts were fading and uh, tried to, to write over them what they believed the text said. So it's become a palimpsest. And what we would like to do is make multispectral images of the globe and, and as far as possible, get at its, its earliest state, the earliest state of both the texts and the images on the globe. Um, and it's it's a it's a very challenging project, uh, more more challenging than the Martellus map, uh, not least because it, the globe is a, a sphere, and how to image we, we've we've imaged two globes previously. We've imaged the Lenox globe at the New York Public Library and the Jagiellonian globe at the Jagiellonian University Museum in Krakow. So we have experience with globes. But those were both uh, quite small, uh, and the, the Beheim globe is larger, and it's, it's in a metal stand, and not all of the stand can be removed, and the globe doesn't rotate uh, freely in the stand. So this is a project that will require a, a lot of very careful planning uh, in order to be carried out effectively, but it's... it's it's something we're we're very excited about and very determined to do. That's a very exciting prospect. It's it's clearly grown out of the current project or out of out of yeah. out of this book in a, a fairly natural way. And we will have you know at least at least two very finely rendered uh, examples of this methodology, um, making the case for its its viability, its import, its uh, its excitement in unearthing these new dimensions of cartographic knowledge uh, about the past. Um, I look forward to it. I assume other readers of this book will be looking forward to it as well. Um, we've been dis discussing a book by Chet Van Duzer here, the title of which is Henricus Martellus's World Map at Yale, circa 1491, Multispectral Imaging, Sources, and Influence. It's a long title, but it really is all in there. Um, I think we've covered many dimensions of the book. Um, this is New Books in Geography, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Peter Ekman. 
host of the channel. Thank you, Chet, for taking the time. This has been fascinating. Thank you, Peter, very much. I hope we'll talk again soon, and I very much encourage uh, listeners to seek out a copy of the book. I look forward to that too, Peter. Thank you. Thanks a lot.